I think I've mentioned here before, I like watching documentaries. I can't imagine when I was a younger person saying something like that. Things change as you get older. So I watched this documentary on a chess player, a guy named Magnus Carlsen. If you have Netflix, you can hit it up. It's pretty interesting. But some of you are thinking, a documentary on a chess player. I know, I know. You're thinking, you're saying chess is boring to play, right? It's perhaps for some even more boring to watch. And then you couldn't imagine watching a documentary of people watching people play chess. Thus is the thrill of being me. So Magnus Carlsen, though, he is this brilliant chess player. I mean, from a young man, his dad had identified that he had in him the gift of seeing things in a different way. Um, Long story uh, longer, Magnus Carlsen, at 23 years of age in 2013, became the world champion chess player. He unseated the sitting world champion who had been champion for five years running, uh, Anand. His last name is Anand. His from India, and I couldn't possibly pronounce his first name properly. So Mr. Anand had been champion for, for five years. Uh, Mr. Anand was 20 years older, or still is, 20 years older than Magnus Carlsen. The two styles of play, and I know what you think, there's styles of play for chess? Yes, there is, as it turns out. Mr. Anand would gather dozens of champion-level chess players, and they would, using computer programs, sit in hotel rooms leading up to the chess tournament to break down every move Magnus Carlsen had ever made and look for every move where he could possibly be weak. Magnus Carlsen was a 23-year-old genius, and his preparation was hanging out on a beach. master chess players head-to-head, and Magnus Carlsen cleaned his clock the first time they played. They played again later. He cleaned his clock again, and he is currently still reigning a champion, world champion chess player. And not only that, he has the highest chess ranking. I know, their chess rankings. You guys are learning so much today. The, the highest chess rating of every, any player ever in history, and he makes more money than any, again, you didn't even know chess players made money. This guy makes over a million dollars a year playing chess. No, that's not enough for me. So this is absolutely incredible in the fact that this kid could come in, and his style of play was from his gut. He had what they called a keen intuition. He could just see the board, and he would play from his gut. And he could figure it out, and his genius was that he could play on the fly. So there really was no way to figure out his weakness, because every game for him was a new game. But chess is a game of trying to beat your opponent. It's a game of manipulation and outsmarting and strategy and looking for ways that you can uh, unseat your opponent and maintain the position of power. And that's what we're going to discover in 2 Samuel 3 and 4 is is a giant chess game. A chess game in the nation of Israel, as it turns out, A chess game for people to maintain their power and their significance and their importance as the nation of Israel uh, was moving through a period of significant civil war. We're going to start this morning at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 3. You can turn back a little bit from our reading. 
beginning here in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 3. During the war, this was again, this time of civil war between the house of Saul. If you remember, King Saul has died. He died at the end of 1 Samuel. King David has been anointed as king, and he is serving at this point as king of the tribe of Judah only. And King Saul's house, uh, the remaining members of his institution and his administration are serving as uh, the ruling power in the rest of Israel. In fact, King Saul's son Ishbosheth is serving as king. Abner had put him in that position. And for seven to eight years, there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of King David. And we pick it up here during this war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. So the chess game is working for Abner. He's uh, working through uh, channels of political intrigue and uh, influence and manipulation to make sure he can maintain his place of strength and his place of power. I'm going to give away what we're going to look at today, so that way if you want to think about other things, I suppose you can. We're going to look at four people today. You want to know who they are? I'll take that as a yes. Abner, Ish-bosheth, the sitting king, Joab, David's general, and then King David. And we're going to look at all four of these guys in this chess match of 2 Samuel 3 and 4 and understand how each of them pursued power. And that's the title of the message today, The Pursuit of Power. The Pursuit of Power. And we'll look at how four guys pursued power in the kingdom of Israel during this time of civil war. So let's begin with Ish-bosheth, the sinning king of Israel. Abner, as we have just read, has been strengthening his position in the house of Saul. Ishbosheth has been a king that was set up, basically a king propped up by Abner himself. Abner knew he couldn't be a king, and the one surviving son of Saul was a convenient one. Stick him on the throne, and I'll use him as a puppet king to accomplish my purposes. And perhaps Ishbosheth understood this to some degree when he levels a significant accusation against Abner. You can see it in verse 7. Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? That's a strange way to start a conversation. But it was an accusation. And the least of his concern was sexual impropriety. Why would this matter that uh, Abner would sleep with Saul's concubine? Because this was the means of obtaining power in the kingdom. You take the king's wives as your own, and that establishes you as the king. If you remember a story that's going to come much, much later, King David had a coup that was executed upon his kingdom by his son Absalom. Do you remember this? King David flees, and what does Absalom do? The most offensive thing you could imagine. What did he do? Do you remember? He set up a tent on top of King David's house and took the concubines that David had left remaining as his own as a means of establishing his power. It wasn't merely a significant uh, uh, situation of sexual impropriety and, in fact, abuse, but it was really a matter, a way in which he was going to seek to establish his own rule. And so Ishbosheth is not accusing Abner 
of immorality, he's accusing Abner of wanting to take the throne. Ishbosheth, in his pursuit of power, is going to make this his case to pursue power. I have rank. I am Ishbosheth, son of Saul, king of Israel. Abner, what's your rank? General of a dead king. Congratulations, your king died. I have rank, Ishbosheth would say. I have privilege. I have position. It is mine. It is not yours. Ishbosheth's job as king of all of Israel, uh, save Judah, David is ruling there. His job is to maintain his job to, to stay on top. If you're a young person, maybe you remember playing King of the Hill. The house that I had growing up, it, like all cities, when, when we lived there as a child, and of course I was a child, um, yeah, that was the edge of town. Now town has passed it. But it was really cool because out in these empty fields were these large dirt piles. Um, you know, back then we didn't have a Atari. Okay, that's really old. Anyway, <laughs> we didn't have but we had something much better. We had a dirt pile. And uh, dirt piles will provide you with ample entertainment if used properly. And one of the favorite games to play is, of course, King of the Hill, right? What's the first rule of King of the Hill? You don't talk about King of the Hill, okay? One guy's on top. All the other guys are running up there trying to knock him off. And your job is to stay on top, right? And if somebody's not bleeding, you're not doing it right. This was Ish-bosheth's job. I have rank, and my job is to stay on top at all costs. The pursuit, his way of pursuing power was to seek ways in which he could consolidate his power, maintain control, and stay on top at all costs. His accusations against Abner were a means to say, I know what you're up to, buddy. Get in line. I'm the king, you're not, get in line or your neck is going to be on the line. This was a, a veiled threat against Abner. So the king, Ishbosheth, is seeking to make his claim of power because he has rank through privilege and through his position. If you'll look over with me at chapter 4. You'll see how this works out for him. After Abner's death, he is left exposed. People understand now that his kingdom is faltering. And two of his leaders, who would have been under Abner, who have been taking raiding parties out and conquering the enemies of Israel, have now decided they no longer want to serve this king because they're worried that he won't be king of the hill for much longer. One was named Bana and the other Rechab. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it in Hebrew. That's how I'm going to read them. They're not here to correct me. They were sons of Rimon the Berothite from the tribe of Benjamin. And they went to Ishbosheth's house and said, We need supplies, we need bread, and we need grain for our raiding parties. And so they made access into Ishbosheth's house. And while he slept, they stabbed him in the stomach, the Bible says. And after he was dead, they decapitated him and took his head to King David. 
Ishbosheth worked hard to maintain king of the hill status. I have rank, I have privilege, I have position. This is how I'm going to maintain power. And as soon as the house of cards started to crumple, his power was gone. And this is how it works. You only get to be king of the hill so long. And if you go play that game, there is only it's just a matter of time until you're knocked off the summit. The pursuit of power, Ishbosheth pursuing it through rank getting knocked off the hill. This reminds me of a verse over in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus had, has given a very lengthy sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is what we call it. And this is what he says. He tells a story, which you've all heard. In fact, you may know a song about it. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, and he's talking about the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, up until this point, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the what? Rock. Are you doing the hand motions? A wise man built his house upon the... Okay. The rain came down. You know the hand motions. Floods came up. The winds blew and beat against the house, yet what? It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And what was the rock? These words of mine, Jesus said. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like Ishbosheth. I should say, a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and it fell with a great crash. Why do I say this is like Ishbosheth? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. The Beatitudes is what we call them, but here we have a description of the opposite of seeking power through rank. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Ishbosheth, in his pursuit of power through a privilege and, and position, was the opposite of meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is how you build your house so it does not fall. Meekness, servitude, insult, persecution, resting on the words of God himself. Not a pursuit of strength by establishing power as Ishbosheth did. Building and pursuing power through our rank and through our privilege and our position as a way of just building our house on the shifting sands. As soon as our rank goes away, and it goes away quick, as soon as our privilege goes away, and it goes away quick, the house will come down. The words that, that uh, we're to build our life on is this radical submission to Jesus that he calls us to, which is to walk in his ways. In fact, to carry a cross as he carried it. 
We don't pursue power by our privilege. We don't pursue power with our rank and our position. Power in the kingdom of heaven is Christ-like, humble submission to Christ and His purposes. This is bizarre, and it doesn't make any sense in the world we live in. Power in the kingdom of God is found through servitude and humiliation, letting others have their way. Ishbosheth sought power through rank and privilege. It ended in his own death, and that's how it always ends. Pursuit of power through rank. Secondly, let's look at Abner. The pursuit of power through control. Abner says this, I have control. Look with me at an amazing verse, 2 Samuel 3, 12. As you might have expected, when Abner was accused of sleeping with Saul's concubine, he was a little offended. Now, you'll make clear note if you read through there in detail, he never denies it. You know, one way to deny something without having to actually deny it is just get really mad. How could you accuse me of such a thing? And never really denying it. But he decides that Ishbosheth is no longer the king he wants to follow because he can see that his control and his power, his pursuit of power through control, is becoming tenuous with Ishbosheth. If if Ishbosheth doesn't trust Abner, Abner needs someone else, another puppet king, who he can use to establish his power through control. And so he decides to leave uh, loyalty to Ishbosheth and in fact go and negotiate power and loyalty to King David. So he sent messengers to King David and said, You know what? I think I want to be on Team, team Davy. They had shirts made up, Team Davy. Look at verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, He's so awesome, he doesn't even have to go to David on his own. That's how full of himself this guy is. He doesn't even have to go in person. I'm going to have my people talk to your people. And listen to what Abner says. Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I'll help you bring all Israel over to you. Read that first sentence. Did you read it? Whose land is it? What's he implying? It's my land. I control the whole shebang, man. Lucky for you, I've got a great deal. I'll hook you up. Now, just keep this in mind. Whose land is it? If I remember right, it was land God had promised to the people of Israel. I'm, I was just curious when he utters this statement through his messengers, what God react, God's reaction to it. I'm sorry, what was that, Abner? Somehow this has become your land? Oh, heaven forbid I get in your way. So Abner here is making a stunning claim that he is in control of the land of Israel, that somehow God has gone on vacation. And now Abner is the one in total control of of the land and the power and the people of Israel. It's a stunning, arrogant statement. David, I've got the land. I mean, sure, at one point uh, God established Israel on the land, but, you know, those times are past. Those religious notions are now gone. Now, let's be practical. I'm in charge here, and we all know it. 
Make an agreement with me, and I'll bring all Israel over to you. See, Abner's whole notion of pursuing power is through control and manipulation. And because of his position, he had significant influence. He had significant resources. He had all the wealth and the power and the military of the northern army, the, the army under Ishbosheth. He had significant influence in all of Israel. All of Israel respected him. Here is a guy who in the middle of a civil war could take the kingdom and take it from one king and hand it to another king. And guess what? This is what's amazing. He could do it. He had the power to do it. He wasn't just seeing what would happen. He knew. He could literally take the kingdom from one king and hand it to another king. And his job in the midst of it is to make sure he could establish for himself his position of power and maintain his control. The king in this case is just a, a convenient means for Abner to maintain his control in the land of Israel. The king to him, David, Ishbosheth, Billy. He doesn't care who's king. As long as he can maintain control and he can maintain his power. I don't know if you've seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy or read the books. This is one of the few occasions in my life where I have read the book of a, something that's made into a movie. I still don't understand why we read books that have been made into movies, but uh, obviously Lord of the Rings is classic literature. Um, there's a character in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the character's name is Grima Wormtongue. Remember this guy? I don't know if you've seen the films or read the book, uh, but Theoden was king of Rohan. And you say, what are we talking about? Did I come to church or what? Okay, listen. And uh, the bad guy, one of the bad guys in the story, Saruman, had taken over Theoden. He had no will, he had no control, and Grima Wormtongue would sit next to the king and whisper into the king. And the king at this point was nothing more than a mouthpiece for the evil work of Grima Wormtongue and Saruman. This is, this is Abner. He simply wants a king that he can sit next to and whisper into his ear that he might be the true power and the true force in the kingdom. You'll have to see what happens to Grim and Wormtongue by watching the movies or read the book. I'm not going to tell you how that ends. Abner wants to use his influence, he wants to use his resources to maintain control over all of Israel. David, in fact, does make a deal with Abner. David, in fact, does. He says, yes, that sounds good. I'll make an agreement with you, but uh, on one condition, you need to bring my wife, Michael, to me. If you remember, Michael was Saul's daughter. David had earned marrying her by conquering Philistines and bringing to King Saul 200 Philistine foreskins. But after David had fled from Saul's presence, Saul had given his wife, David's wife, to another man. And David said, I want my wife back. And Ishbosheth, as weak as he was, and Abner, looking to uh, curry good favor with uh, King David, they did this. They delivered his wife to him to the heartbreak of her husband, Paltiel. Abner had the ability to destroy a marriage to maintain his control of the kingdom. This guy had it going on. He had influence. He had resources. He had control. And what did that lead to? You can read the story, but I'll tell you how it goes. Joab discovers that 
David has made a deal with Abner, and Joab is concerned, number one, that he might be out of a job, and number two, if you remember, Abner killed Joab's brother. And Joab was very, very upset about this. Abner had left the presence of David, and Joab recalled Abner, and he sent messengers to Abner and said, Abner, come back. We had a couple more things to talk about. We need to hash out the, 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 the fine print on this deal. And so Abner returns to talk to Joab under pretenses of faith. And Joab stabs him in the guts and kills him. You'll notice in your Bible it says he went into a gate, a city gate or a a wall gate to to do this. He said, let's go into the gate and discuss. And uh, you have to keep in mind the gates of cities back then weren't just merely a door. Uh, They would have antechambers and even rooms in them. So to go into a gate is to go into a private location. So he took him into privacy and he killed him. So Abner's quest for power was through control and influence and resources. And just like the king before him, Ishbosheth, what did it lead to? Led, led to his death. Again, we're going to do this on all of these. I want to draw your attention to a passage in Matthew and just compare these with the words of our Lord. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and she asked a favor of Jesus. Let's just be honest. That's not cool, dudes. Sending your mom in, that's not. Anyway. What is it you want, he asked. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left. Very Abner-ish. We see a new king. We see a guy with power. We see a guy with influence. Now is the time to get in and make sure we can maintain our position of importance, our position of control as this new kingdom comes usher, being ushered in. Let's grasp at the control and the resource so that we have a shot at it. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they said, sure. And he, they maybe didn't understand. He's saying, can you die my death? And they vary in a very cavalier sense. Oh, sure we can. No problem. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink this cup, but it's not mine to give out those positions. It's not mine to establish your control and power. That's for the Father to determine who would sit in positions of power and influence in the kingdom. And listen, Jesus tells this story. He called all the disciples together because he wanted to get this into our heads. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise high authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. I've got to read that again because I think we've forgotten this verse exists. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So just a real quick, and I I can't preach a sermon on this. We've already been through Matthew. You can look up that sermon online. When does the servant thing end? So I think what we do in this sort of an American mindset, okay, to be great, I become a servant. Okay, so I'm a servant on Saturday, right? So next Monday, I'm great, right? Is that how that works? When does the servant thing end? When you die. Yeah, it's no problem. It's not a big deal. It's just when you're dead. The greatness of the kingdom of God is not here. 
The greatness of the kingdom of God here is servanthood. By definition, greatness of the kingdom of God, while we're still in these corruptible tents, is servanthood. That's the whole goal. Uh, to quote a mentor of mine, it's the whole game, the whole contest in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, is who can get to the bottom the fastest. It's, it's how low can we get, not how high we can get, because the greatness comes when Christ returns and we experience greatness, not because we're great, but because he's great. It's difficult, though. The culture we breathe, it's the air we live in. It says it, we want to aspire to something higher, and the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. He says, you want to be great. Don't be like Abner. You want to dive to the bottom, see how low you can get, how fast you can get there. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This upside-down kingdom of Jesus is one in which we pursue power by pursuing servanthood. How much control over circumstances do servants have? Yeah, none. If you have control and you have influence and you have power and resources as a servant, you're by definition not a servant. A servant is one who gives up everything to serve, not my own interests, but the interests of others. Not our own interests, but the interests of the kingdom of God. The challenge for Abner is the same challenge we face. The issue is not what could we do or what can we do. The issue often in the kingdom of God is what should we do? Servanthood is not exercising influence when I have it. Servanthood is not using my resources to benefit my agenda when I have them. Servanthood is not using my influence, but letting others who have no influence have their way. The pursuit of power. For Abner, he wanted control. And that's cast in sharp contrast to what Christ calls us to, which is to abandon control that we might serve one another in him. Pursuit of power. What were the two we've covered so far? Ish-bosheth. What did he have? Rank. Position and power. Abner. What did he have? Control. Influence and resources. Now let's look at Joab. Joab is King David's general. And Joab is going to pursue power through strength. I might say it this way, through grit, through cunning, his smarts. Joab, if Joab were here, what we would say about Joab, Joab is one who is street smart. He knows how to take care of his business in the real world. Second Samuel chapter three, verse twenty-four. Joab left David, and he had sent message. This is verse twenty-six. Joab had discovered David had made a, a covenant or an agreement with Abner, and he was upset about this. So Joab was going to take care of Abner, as we discussed. This is what Joab says to King David in verse twenty-four of Second Samuel three. What have you done? What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? 
Now he's gone. You know the Abner son of Ner. David's going, oh no, I have no, who's that guy? He came to deceive you and to observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. Now that's not what Abner came to do. The only one doing any deceiving in this section is Joab himself. Can you imagine Joab coming up to his king and saying, you're an idiot. Now from my understanding of reading the Old Testament, I think King David was a tough hombre. I don't know if that's in the Hebrew, but it's close. And Joab is basically saying, you don't have a clue what you're doing, David. What have you done? Whose kingdom is this? Who is in charge here? Who would, Abner, who would Joab say should be in charge? Not King David. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's an idealistic, wet-behind-the-ears king. He has no idea what he's up against here. Joab understands he's the street smart, knows how to get things done general, while David is the, the pie-in-the-sky idealist. And, and Joab says, once again, I've got to go do the dirty work because of my uh, uh, hands too clean to do the dirty work king I serve. So Joab, in false pretenses, calls Abner back and kills him. Abner determines that he needs to take a, a principled stand for the sake of the security of the kingdom. And even though murdering Abner is wrong, he would certainly know it is wrong, he understands the greater good is security of the kingdom against Abner. And it just so happens that this important security problem he's facing also happens to deal with his personal revenge issues. Isn't that funny how convenient that is? All of a sudden, he's really concerned about the security of the kingdom. Yeah, right, Abner, or Joab. That's how this always happens. We become real principled about things uh, that need to be uh, handled in a particular way, especially when they seem to be real parallel and coincide with our particular bents and our particular preferences. So Joab gets real principled about the murder he commits. I don't know if he expected King David's response. What did King David do when he discovered Abner was dead? He tore his clothes, and he commanded Joab to tear his clothes. Mourn for the dead general. This is an, a, a brother in Israel, and you have killed him. We will mourn. In fact, David mourned so overtly and so over the top that everybody in Israel knew that David had nothing to do with it, that this was all Joab, and it was all his business. David prayed a prayer upon a curse upon Abner. I'm going to read it again because it's one of the most entertaining verses in all of Scripture. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore. I don't even know how you come up with this stuff. It's unbelievable. Or leprosy. Like if, if that doesn't work out, how about leprosy, which seems to be the same as a running sore. Or one who leans on a crutch. Or one who falls by the sword. And if none of, the, none of that works, a guy who can't, doesn't have enough food. He's so angry with Joab, he prays a curse upon his family. I don't know if you know how Joab dies. He serves David faithfully to some degree throughout the entirety of David's reign for 40 years. And when King Solomon becomes king and is being appointed king, what does Joab do? Exactly what Abner did with Ishbosheth. 
Joab worked with Solomon's brother Adonijah and got him set up as king. Joab then told Solomon's brother to go and obtain the woman who had been keeping David warm in his old age. Why would he do that? Take the king's concubine that you might establish your kingdom. Joab is going to be a conniving, using his street smarts, his grit, his cunning, all the way into the kingdom of Solomon. Solomon tamps down that rebellion, and Joab runs to the temple and grabs onto the altar. And the guys come to King Solomon and say, we don't know what to do. Joab's in clinging to the altar. We don't know if we're allowed to kill a guy on the altar. Are you allowed to kill a guy in church? He's like Quasimodo, sanctuary. I don't know. It's... King Solomon, smart guy, you know what he said? Go kill that guy. They killed him next to the altar. Joab sought his strength through his grit and his cunning and his street smarts. And at the end of the day, he lived a long life. It wasn't a great life. He did lead a long life, but it ended at his death. He tried to pursue his power through his strength. And when his strength ran out, he was dead. Certainly with his strength, he could hold on to it for a while, but he couldn't hold on to it forever. James chapter 4, you can turn there if you want, or you can just hear, listen to me, read it. Here's what James is telling the Jewish believers. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Remember, he's talking to a church here. He's talking to a group of believers. What's interesting is, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Theological differences doesn't even come up. It's you want stuff, you want things your way, they're not your way, so there's fights and there's quarrels. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. I'm looking for the verse I want. Here it is. Verse 13, James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city, uh, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's very Joab-like. I know what we'll do. I'll, I'll work with the king and establish my power. And he said, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say, if the Lord... If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this, or we will do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. This idea of pursuing power through strength and street smarts and grit and cunning is basically saying this. The issue is not what I should do. The issue is what I can do. And the kingdom of God, again, flips that on its head. And the issue is not for the believer what we can do. The issue is what we should do. And many, many, many times there are things that are within our power to do and to accomplish that the Lord has no interest in doing 
or accomplishing, especially when those things come from our own desires and agenda instead of the kingdom's desire and agenda. Joab didn't understand the difference. He figured if he wanted it, it must be the God's will, right? If I want it, it must be God's will because I'm alive and I know who God is. Perhaps we should work into our thinking that there are things that we possibly have the power and the resources and the smarts to accomplish and God doesn't want to accomplish them. Isn't that irritating? God would be a lot more convenient if he would just do it our way. We have to acknowledge this, so God's way is better than our brilliant ways. God's way is better than our desires and our preferences and our agendas. And His way is actually better than us getting everything we ever wanted. What causes fights and quarrels among us when we pursue power through our street uh, smarts and our grit and our cunning, we say, God, since I can do it, I should do it. And God says, no, no, no. If the Lord wills it, then we proceed. What does true power look like? Something is really interesting about King David in these two chapters, and we're going to close with this. King David makes a really, really interesting claim to power, and I'm going to start with verse 39 of 2 Samuel 3. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. He makes a statement which I don't think is very kingly. This is what he says. This is in response to Joab killing Abner in the end of his mourning. He says, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel today? And today, though I am king, what's he say there? I'm weak. These sons of Zariah are too strong for me. Who are the sons of Zariah? Joab and his one remaining brother. There were three sons of Zariah, and their brother Asahel has already died at the hands of Abner. And, and David here is saying, he's making a claim to power very simply, Joab's stronger than me. He's got more power. He's got more influence. He's got more strength. I can't beat him. Listen to his prayer. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. See, David is going to pursue power through strength as well but not his own. Do you see that prayer? You notice the difference between David and Abner and Joab and Ishbosheth. He comes and he says, I, you know, I'm going to pursue strength as well for my kingdom, and that, that strength is not my own. In fact, here, let me describe my strength for you. Weakness. Instead, I want strength in my kingdom to be from the Lord. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. Now, this is David's mindset. He knows he's a weak king in a weak kingdom in the midst of that when the biggest general in his country visits him Abner what does David say to Abner I want my wife back that was a pretty bold thing to say if Abner wanted to he could have mustered the entire army of Israel and invaded Judah and, and from a military standpoint it would have been a pretty easy victory but David's not afraid of Abner He's not afraid of Ishbosheth. He knows that the Lord was working in him back in 1 Samuel when he invaded the Philistines and God's hand was with him and, and Michael was the wife that he had gained as a result of the Lord's working through him. He said, no, no, no. Understand, we're not equals here. 
You may have power and strength and influence, but I am doing the Lord's work by his hand. So David says, bring me my wife. I have rank. And it's not from you, it's from the Lord. So David makes a claim of strength from the Lord. He makes a claim of rank from the Lord. And finally, look at 2 Samuel 4, verse 9. David answers Rechab and Bana, the sons of Rimon the Berothite. So these guys had killed Ishbosheth and delivered the head of Ishbosheth to David, expecting a reward for their work, much like the Amalekite who claimed to have killed King Saul expected a reward for his work. And this is David's response. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more then, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now demand his blood from you? And he has them killed, has their hands and feet cut off, and displays their bodies as what happens to those who are not loyal to God's people. And this is what David says, As surely as the Lord lives, may the Lord repay, David would say. The Lord is the one who has delivered David is the claim he is making. In all of David's life, in all the situations where his life was at risk, who was in control? The Lord was in control. So David makes a claim of rank, saying, no, I am the king. I have uh, been used by the Lord. He makes a claim of strength, saying, uh, the Lord has, in fact, uh, delivered. And he makes a claim of control, saying, the Lord is the one who is delivering me and will repay the evil. The Lord was with David. The Lord will repay. The Lord has delivered. So here's the thing. How do you pursue power? Through rank, power and privilege, through control and strength. But here's the thing. Your rank, control, and strength is pretty lame compared to the Lord's. And David understood that as king. He basically said, listen, I'm going to pursue power the same way you guys do, but instead of the rank, control, and strength coming from me, I'll just trust the Lord to do his thing. I'll just trust the rank of God who is with me, and I will trust the, the control of God who will repay my enemies, and I will str trust the strength of God who will deliver me from my enemies. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute. That sounds kind of silly, but that's what we're going to do. What is Jesus' rank? The name above every name. Jesus' rank. The name that is above every name. What kind of control does Jesus have? When he spoke... The universe happened. I can't get Siri to work. And when Jesus speaks, just a universe is created. There's not one thing in all of history, from the beginning of eternity to the end of eternity, that God has not been in complete and total control. What kind of strength does Jesus have? 
The writer in Colossians says this, He is before all things, and in him everything holds together. Everything holds together. What happens to you and me if Jesus goes on break? Poof, we don't hold together. It's new carpet. We don't want that going on. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. I just love watching uh, you know, documentaries, obviously, but I love watching scientists trying to figure out the orbits and everything, and, and I think you know, that's really kind of cool and stuff, but I always like to watch those and go, man, nice work, Jesus. I mean, just sitting there, just holding it together. Just, he just, he's just holding it together. I mean, look how little of the known universe we know, and we already know it's amazing. He's holding stuff together we don't even know about. Highest rank, most control, most strength. I don't know how to say this. This is sort of not very religious. Dude is awesome. And he walks away from all of that and says, I'll die for you. He said, I don't need the rank. I don't need all that control. I don't need to be strong. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away from all of that so you can have forgiveness. So you can wake up in the morning and say, His your grace is new again today. God, yesterday was too much. I, I can't believe you're giving me more today. So why are you using your rank? to accomplish something? Why are you trying to, to maintain this control? Your, your control is so flimsy, and you already know this. Your strength is failing. We don't think so as much as we're younger, but as we get older, we realize our strength is failing. I would pray and hope that each of us we'd come to the place in our life where we walk away from all those pursuits of power and can, and can echo with, with David as he said in 2 Samuel 4, 9, as surely as the Lord lives, he has delivered me out of every trouble. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't have enough pull. I didn't have enough influence. He has delivered me out of every trouble. May his name be praised. That's good news. He bails us out again today. He bails us out again tomorrow. He happily and uh, significantly walked away from everything that he might purchase for us his kingdom.